Welcome to another episode of Do North Outdoors Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host. I am about 2,530 miles away from my co-host, Natalie Dillon. Natalie's probably relaxing, laying on the couch, or maybe she's out there foraging for mushrooms. I don't know what she's doing, and I'm not sure what Brandon's doing either. He's probably slacking, but I'm up here in Alaska, the most beautiful place that I think I have ever been. And I'm sitting uh, with a man that has more stories than we have time for today. It's a, it's a true honor uh, and privilege to be able to bring you this podcast today. Uh, I am on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. My guest is Dr. Bob Letta. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your busy, busy schedule. I have been here now for five days and you come and go constantly. Do you even sleep? I sleep. I try to get my seven, seven and a half hours every night, as you might be aware. I'm a health and wellness physician, so I, yeah. I really focus on that. But uh, the time in between that, I'm wide open most of the time. Wide open. So you're a bush pilot, you're a fishing guide, you're a hunting guide, and you're a doctor. That's How, correct. Is, is there anything else included that I missed there? Uh, I coach a little baseball. Do you really? Yeah. For who? Uh, for my kid. Yeah, nice, but nice. my older boy, uh, I, I coached high school baseball through him, and I'm sure I'll help out with high school baseball when Brett gets of age. How old are your kids? Uh, Brett's 11. Rachel is a mad horse barrel racer uh, at 13. Uh, my daughter, Elise, just graduated uh, from high school and is going to do a massage school in Colorado, and we're going moose hunting today. Yes, so. I know. That's so why we're going to wrap this up as quick as we can so yeah. you can get out there. And um, um, my two boys are uh, 21 and 23, 22 and 24. I'd have to do math, and I was told there'd be no math this morning. <laughs> um, and uh, they both have – we have a couple grandkids from them. So, uh, uh, yeah, got a pretty, pretty wide spread there and, uh, had a good time with that. I've learned since I've been up here that there's few people that are originally from Alaska. You are not a, a native Alaskan. You're from Texas. How in the world did you end up here? Well, when I was in, uh, my fourth year of college at Sam Houston State University, I was accepted into medical school and I was teaching a lab, uh, anatomy and physiology lab. Uh, for one of the college professors, and about midway through the year, he mentioned that he needed a deckhand on his salmon fishing boat in Alaska, and my head snapped around like it was on a swivel, and I'm like, uh, uh, yeah, you just found him. You know, I, I, I'd been um, deckhanding on a boat out of Freeport um, for saltwater fishing in okay. Texas, and I grew up on boats. My dad was a big fisherman, never been seasick a day in my life. I said, hey, I know every knot. I said, I don't know anything about commercial salmon fishing, but, you know, I'll I can, figure it I out. I can learn. Yeah. So I came up here in 1986, and I can still remember, like, like it's yesterday, the day I got off the plane in Anchorage. It was 1130 on a June 22nd, 1986, so one day after summer solstice. And it was about 11.30 at night. The sun was setting behind the Alaska Range. It was one of these beautiful days like today. And, um, you know, the lighting was just amazing. And I, and I stepped onto that tarmac and I went, this is where I'm living. Never going and I, back. And I knew it, right? Like it was like, um, you know, 
like, you know, the sun's coming up tomorrow. I mean, I knew there was no way I was not living in Alaska, but I had a little road to hoe ahead of me because I was accepted into med school. So I had to go through med school and probably decided on the uh, career of emergency medicine because of the freedom that that lifestyle gave. Yeah. Plus it was a short residency, three years and worked out well because it gave me the ability to come up here, get a job on the Kenai Peninsula at the hospital here in town and then build a fishing lodge while I was a working doctor, which is what I did. Yeah, so we're at your place now. I mean, it's incredible. We're, we're kind of up on, I, I don't know how do you explain it. I mean, it's, it's wilderness up here where we're at. Um, and there are how many cabins included in this lodge? So we have the original lodge, which was a four-suite structure, um, two two-bedroom suites and Two one-bedroom suites overlooking Longmere Lake, which is just outside of Soldotna in the town of Sterling. And then um, we eventually built a second uh, or, or two other structures uh, that were two-bedroom, two-bath cabins. Um, for one of those, we purchased a couple more acres opposite the lake, which is this four kind of three-acre complex we're sitting on right now. And then finally, in 2011, we built this uh, clubhouse office with four studios on top of it. And then the one cabin, cabin two, has two efficiencies. So we have 11 total suites. Almost all of them have full kitchens and, uh, uh, you know, private baths. And, of course, we've got, you know, TV and Internet, even though we're off the grid a little bit. You yeah. might see a brown bear, you know, in the driveway, we still have the amenities. How often do you see a bear come through here? Uh, my wife actually a while ago was going over to my medical office in the morning and for some reason God prompted her to drive instead of walk and she said there was a brown bear in the driveway right right no. like 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 fifty feet from where we're sitting. Oh right my now. gosh. Last night, so we got in late and I was hauling gear into our cabin and I was grabbing stuff and all of a sudden something brushed against the back of my leg. And it was, you know, it's 11 p.m. dark, and I was, oh, and I jumped, and it was a cat. Yeah, we got, we got a lot, we have a lot of cats. But it's easy to get, it's easy to get jumpy around yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the name of your lodge is called All Alaska Outdoors. That's correct. And you guys specialize in, it feels like, everything. Um, so we'll take this in, in several different directions, because uh, there's so much to do up here. So... I've spent a couple days with um, with your one of your young guns, Eric Locker, and his buddy Evan Withrow. And Eric is is one of your ptarmigan hunting guides, and we have been on the hunt of a lifetime. I mean, you could say it in so many ways. I'm going to try to show it as best I can on on TV. But ptarmigan hunting is it's like the most epic grouse hunt, uh, upland bird hunt that I think you can maybe go on. Uh, I've, I've been around North America hunting birds, but that, the challenge behind it, the scenery, the beauty of it. Um, I think I got a little sidetracked with where I wanted to go here with this conversation, but um, the, the opportunities that exist up here are just so plentiful. And the other people that we've met, you know, like the, Eric, that's his specialty, but he's also, he's like, we want to go fishing. So we've, we've been fishing too. And we talk with a lot of the locals and they're, 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 they struggle to figure out what they want to go for each day. They're like, well, yeah, I was, I was duck hunting this morning and now we're, we're fishing trout today on the Kenai. Uh, but then they're going moose hunting, you know, and so they don't have time to fit everything in, which is, 
you know, that's fair for a lot of people back in uh, the lower 48, too. Fall is a busy season. So you do it all. You you fly in, and I, I'm interested, and I think others might be, too, to hear some of your stories and your experience of, of flying in. Because Alaska bush pilots, I mean, they're, they're bad sons of guns, you know, in the eyes of people back home. Um, obviously, you've seen a lot. Do you have stories that stand out? Well, first, how many years have you been flying up here now? Well, I got my pilot's license during my residency in 1992, moved up here in 93. Um, Alan Helfer, who's my partner in the lodge now, but originally our relationship was through Talon Air, and he was the main flyout service that I utilized for the lodge. He took me under his wing. He started flying up here when he was 12 years old. He was born here and grew up here. His dad was in the oil industry. And, um, you know, he, he taught me to fly the bush, which is a lot bigger task than learning how to fly an airplane and land on, you know, getting a pilot's license is pretty easy, okay? 12-year-olds can get them. You can get a pilot's license before you me. can get a driver's license. You know, learning to fly the bush, the weather, all of the subtleties of that, avoiding the mishaps and the dangers, you know, I mean, I have obviously avoided learning from some of the school of hard knocks that he did because he told me those things and said, <laughs> watch out for this, you know. What are and, some things you have to watch out for? Oh, there's so much. I mean, yeah. well, you know, you need to understand how wind affects mountain flying, you know, so you have to kind of learn how to understand what direction the wind's coming from and what side of the valley to be on. I mean, obviously, you've got to learn, you know, takeoff and landing distances because sometimes you're going into short places. Um, you have to learn how to fly in low visibility weather. You know, you have when it's raining hard and you can't see well. And then you also have layered clouds that you're flying through to get through mountain passes. You have to always be thinking about what if my engine fails? Where's my safe out? What is, what is that? What is your safe out if your engine fails? Well, you're just always looking for some place. I mean, so... On, on floats, it may be landing in a piece of flat ground. I mean, at the end of the day, you just got to make sure you're walking away. Yeah. I mean, if the plane isn't in great shape, you can survive, right? We've got a spot. We've got an in-reach. We've got survival gear. We're going to get rescued relatively quickly. You just, you just can't have be to in a position where you're not going to make it. You know, you, you can't land in the inlet in eight-foot seas. So if the inlet's rough... You fly like you're on wheels, meaning you get high enough that if you lost your motor mid-inlet, you could glide and crash on land. So I mean, even <laughs> though you're on floats, the objective would be don't land in the water, right? I mean, so there's all kinds of stuff that you think. And I've learned all of that from one of the most premier bush pilots probably ever to, you know, walk planet Earth. And I say that with complete revelation. And I mean, it's like, he is an amazing man. And I was very fortunate. I spent my, um, my first few years sitting right seat guiding with him flying left seat. In other words, I would do ultimate expeditions, lease his planes for the day. He would do the flying. I was sitting right seat and then do the guiding for my clients. And so I learned all this bush flying from that perspective, which was a huge, and then I had a super cub the role that I was of a mentor cannot be right, right, yeah, yeah. And, and just amazing, yeah. right? And um, and then eventually he, he he helped me purchase every one of my aircraft. You know, my 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 when I knew I was going to be a bush pilot was the very first year I came up here. 
after I worked commercial fishing all summer. I had to go to med school on August 12th. On August 4th, I got flown out to a lake on the west side of Cook Inlet by a, another air charter service. Um, Allen's wasn't in business at that time. Um, and uh, I sat right seat in the beaver. My dad and his friend paid for this trip for us to go camp over there. And when I flew in that beaver in the right seat over into those mountains, I knew I was going to be a. I knew I was going to be a beaver pilot. I wow. said, "I'm I'm doing this." Yeah. So it's you know, it's like, I'm kind of like a bulldog with a bone. You know, if, I mean, if I if I get <laughs> yeah. it, it's like if I tell you I'm doing something, you probably don't doubt it. You uh, know, I wouldn't doubt you for a second. Yeah. I've, I've spent so, a couple of days with you now. It's, so, um, anyways, uh, you know, I, I've learned, you know, from the school of hard knocks myself, I've had a couple of goof ups, nothing, nothing, you know, where I was thought I was going to die, but you know, but I, the people I, in the plane probably thought they were going to die. Yeah. Well, yesterday was interesting. Um, you know, yesterday, uh, I, I told the guests, I said, look, I'm going to take you to the prettiest weather today and it's going to be pretty nice. And I said, by about four o'clock, we're going to be facing some pretty hard South winds. You guys mm-hmm. experienced it. I'm sure up in the mm-hmm. mountains hunting. Yeah. And it actually stayed tranquil where we were fishing the entire day. It's deceiving, though, because what happens on one side of the mountain isn't necessarily what's happening on the other. Absolutely. And so when we got about halfway through the Kenai Mountains coming through a glacial pass, we started catching the downdrafts from the south wind that were perpendicular to the pass we were in. And there were some big drops, and the people were scared. And I said, yeah, this is kind of violent. I said, this is nothing the plane can't handle. And just so you know... I'm not squinchy at all right now. And they said, okay, we trust you, Dr. Bob. Thanks. Yeah. Well, we got back to the lake and as we're coming to the lake, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at my ground speed and I'm cooking, right? Cause now I've turned to the North and the wind's out of the South. And so I get weather at Soldatna and it's like, uh, Soldatna was, uh, 19, you know, one nine zero nineteen gust to 29. And then I looked at Mackey Lake as I'm making my base and I'm like, uh, the landing's going to be a little more sporty than flying through the pass. And <laughs> oh, I mean, it, no. it was, it was sporty, man. I'm you so know? glad I was not <laughs> yeah. in that plane. And, and, and they were like, Oh, good job. Good job. Good job. Like, <laughs> Cause I mean, I was fighting it to get it on the water because it's coming over a ridge and then you're getting a burble and you're trying to get down. And literally I was about to touch down and it wasn't too bad. I mean, I had a couple of big shifts and I could see this gust hit the water and I go, uh, we're not landing right now. <laughs> you go back up? Oh, yeah, 20 feet. I mean, it was. You, there's no way you were getting down. I mean, you got full flaps, you know, and you're trying to get down. And so as soon as those floats hit the water, I dumped the flaps, and I actually greased it. It was pretty amazing, but luck. Purely God was driving the plane at that point, and he happened to just touch me down on the water, and I realized I touched, and I just dumped the flaps, and we were down. I was like, Whoa. well, that was good. And then the next problem is how do you turn the plane around? Because it's a weather vane. You know, Mm -hmm. so I had to like kind of side taxi until I got behind some land and could get out of the wind enough that I could turn the plane around and go back to the dock, which was behind me. So, you know, you have stuff like that all the time. I feel like that's every day, though, up here. Every day is an adventure, at least, I mean, my limited experience. First off, when we flew with you the other day, that was the best beaver flight I have ever been on. Like the, the, the small planes like that. I was up here probably 10 years ago. And I, I swore I would never get in another plane like that again in my life because we got in a blizzard and it was bad. And we, at one point, were thrown into a 360 in the air. The plane got whipped so hard that the pilot just took it and he brought it back around. Have you, I, I, I was, 
we were thrown up, down, left, right, stalled out. I mean, it was the scariest thing. And he was just calm and cool. The pilot was calm and cool the whole time. I was not. I was so sore the next day when I woke up because my body was so tense from hanging on tight as if it mattered, you know, as if me holding right. on to the, the old bleep handles were really going to save me, you know. But we landed on a frozen riverbed. And I was like, I'm walking out. I don't care if I have to walk over Mount Denali. I'm walking out. I am not flying. Our flight with you was magical. That was nice. That was nice. We had really calm conditions yep. then. That was what you would call stable air. You know, yep. there were some clouds hanging Early on the morning, side of the mountain. You don't have any yeah. real thermals affecting the air. Right. It was just beautiful. But I have to imagine, you know, yesterday is you're always on your toes when you're flying as a bush pilot. You're always uh, trying to predict or plan, right, to make things smooth. Have you ever been in a position in the air where you were scared? Uh, I had a situation like what you just described where the plane was uncontrollable for about five minutes. I mean, you, you know, meaning it was just, the, the wind was just completely tossing me around and I was just radically making adjustments, trying not to, you, you have to keep flying it when that yeah. happens, you know. You can't give up. Yeah, but I mean, it was, it was, it took a long time to get out of that. It was a, a place where, um, you know, about five different mountain passes came together and there was a significant pressure gradient across the mountain range and there was also sustained, you know, winds from a particular direction. So there was two types of air masses moving and mixing in a violent, you know, blender, basically. And it was uncontrollable. I mean, it was the thousand foot drops and thousand, you know, and you've got mountains on both sides. And I mean, I, I didn't think I was going to die, but it was certainly... You didn't, did you not want to get back in that plane for a little bit? No, I mean, I, did, I, 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 that was a long time ago when I was in my infancy and I'm a lot better at, I, you know, I'm a lot better at predicting weather now. There's a lot more, um, um, you know, avenues to explore what's going to happen. I mean, you know, I, I, I use many resources online every yeah. morning before I fly. So I really know what to expect and I'm you turned me on to a new app, windy.com. Windy T. Windy T. That's windy right. Windy T. And that thing's really, really good and it's almost always right. It predicted exactly what I had yesterday. Uh, although, you know, I told the people we were going to get beat up on the way home. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, it'd be okay. It's going to be safe. Um, and uh, I told you what you were going to experience on mm -hmm. your first Armageddon hunt. I said, you know, at three o'clock, it's going to be raining. It's going to get a little ugly here, you know? I mean, yeah. So we made a decision, and this might be the first time because Eric's skills um, and, and his abilities and our plan came together, but you dropped us off and left us, Bob. <laughs> you left us for dead up in the mountains, and it was magical. It was amazing. But no, you, you not didn't leave us, but the ceilings were dropping throughout the day. We had to save flight in. And then shortly after the skies were going to, the clouds were going to roll in and you get to a certain point where you, it's not safe to fly. And this was something you mentioned when we were in the air, you don't push your luck up here. If, if you, if it's borderline to fly or not to fly, you don't fly. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I can fly through pretty low visibility and I can thry, fly through low ceilings, but I am not um, going to, uh, I mean, there's no way I'm making the next move if I don't know that I'm going to be okay on the other side. So, I mean, it's like, so like, you know, you might be going through uh, 
a satellite, a gun sight pass, right? And there might, it might have a low ceiling. I might go up and make a, a slow turn and look. And if I can't see on the other side of that, in other words, like let's say it was low visibility, it was raining, and there was a short I'm not just going to go through there and see how it works out on the other side. Yeah. Where I don't know that I've got a full you're, ability you're to flying turn. visually. Right. And like if I'm coming down a pass and I'm coming up to the crux of the pass, maybe where the weather's most likely to put the ceiling right on the ground and I'm going to have to turn around, you know, I'm on the right-hand side of the pass because we all turn better to our left. And, you know, I mean, you, you, there's, there's just things that you learn that you're constantly doing. Now, I mean, I fly through stuff that many pilots would never fly through. And, and there's stuff that Alan will fly in that I'm not going to fly in, yeah. you know. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but, I mean, it's like there are certain things I won't do. Like when the forecast is LLWS, low-level wind shear, that's what I was in that I was describing to you. That yeah. means the plane's uncontrollable. That's the stuff you hear about the big airliner that crashed, you know. Yeah, well, on, there's, there's uh, bush pilot planes that go down every year up here. Yep. Every year. And I, I don't know, do you know the numbers on that? I'm I not do trying not. To, we're not trying I, to scare no, people. No, I do right not. Now, but, it's not super high, but it does yeah, happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, nowadays, the, I think a lot of the, the crashes are midair collisions because there's a lot of planes flying and we're, and nowadays almost all of us commercial guys have um, uh, traffic locating technology in our aircraft. I, I'm putting it in my super cub right now. I mean, in my cubs getting radio work done on it right now so that I can see the other aircraft. I know what altitude they're at. I know what direction they're coming. And the only people I won't see are those that don't have a transponder which is just a handful of the you know little guys with little planes like Cubs that don't have a transponder, which mine didn't used to. And I said, you know what? After putting that in my Beaver, it's like not doing it anymore. Yeah, not flying without that extra data of here's where the other aircraft are. I can see them on my GPS. So you know, uh, if somebody you know, when you come up to Alaska, there's a lot of different adventures that you can go on. A lot of fishing and hunting adventures, and a lot of it. The, the Alaska taxi is a float plane, you know? And so the, as we're out and about around here, there's planes flying around and there's got to be dozens or maybe hundreds of pilots up here, right? In this general area. And then across the state, probably thousands that you can get on. How do you know how who to trust when you're getting in one of those? I don't know because I don't evaluate that. Yeah. I know I know that all, I know that like the five pilots that fly for Talon Air... You trust. Zero incidents. Yeah. And None of us have an incident. I mean, you know. And that's how many, and, that's, and so over that's 20 one years. You can, you could look that up. I mean, that's, I suppose if you can find out the pilot's name, you can mm -hmm. see if he has any incidents, meaning has he crashed an airplane? Because that's an incident, mm -hmm. you know, if you crash. Now, not every time somebody crashes, is it their fault either, you know? I mean, you, you know, you, I mean, if your motor quits mm -hmm. and you crash, that's probably going to get reported to the FAA and sometimes the motor quit and it wasn't because you ran out of gas. It was, it's a mechanical device that mm -hmm. sometimes fails, you know, but of course, if they have zero incidents and they've got some time, you know, which would be the other factor, you know, how much time do they have, you know, which would also be something I imagine is accessible to the public. You could ask the pilot. Well, you mentioned earlier, a 12 year old can fly up here, right? You know, 
I would be a little nervous getting in an airplane with a 12-year-old pilot. <laughs> just, I don't think they can get a commercial license, okay. but yeah, right. but they can get a private. They can do private. That's crazy. Yeah. That just blows my mind. Last plane question. Do you have, when this is all done, or at least to this point, do you have a favorite story about your flying career that will stick with you? My favorite story, God, man, there's, there's so many, you know. The, well, you told about 20 of them when we were on a half-hour flight the other day. Yeah, I know so, a so, but, but to hit, hit me with a favorite, um, a favorite flying story, um, you know, I, I there's just the whole experience of flying is my favorite story. I mean, you're a bird. Mm-hmm. You've got the best view of planet Earth. I mean, you're. it's like, you know, it's like, I don't go to church in the summer on Sundays. I go every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got a front row seat to God's creation. I have converted two people to Christianity in the front seat of a beaver. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, because I, I just basically, they, they didn't believe in God. And I'm like, that's not even possible. When you look Think at Think about this. the logic of what you're saying. You think that... As we're cresting over, you know, Lake Clark Pass going across it and just, you know, these jagged mountains are 50 feet below the floats as we cross it. And on this beautiful day going out to Moose Camp, and this guy is a, one of my best friends now. In fact, he's a partner in my, my wellness practice. And I'm like, you really think that this, what we're looking at right now and this experience, you and I sitting here talking and contemplating this question you, you, as smart as you are, you tell me you think that all of this, these atoms just occurred randomly and fell together in such a way that you and I are sitting here having this conversation and that this is not the design of something that loves you and is trying to impress you beyond all recognition. And I mean, you know, that I, I still remember when he came over for Super Bowl Sunday after that hunt together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he said, God bless, you know? And I was like, you didn't believe cool. in God, you know? Yeah. So it's quite the, uh, it's quite the place to, to try to, um, you know, make people see just how special planet Earth was and made for us. And, I mean, every time I get in the airplane, you know, it's special. Yeah. I, I love going to places like this when I have the opportunity. And I realize that I'm blessed to be in this position in my life to come to places like this. But when you're standing on top of a mountain and there's not another human being besides maybe your couple buddies that we're with, um, as far as you can see in any direction. And you know that there's very few people that have hiked to the top of this mountain. You just stand there and you feel so small. And that's that's a humbling thing. That's a good thing. And I... I just stop every time for a little bit and I look around and I I just give thanks for being able to have the physical ability to get to that point and to see it and just appreciate it. It's beautiful. I mean, it's just, there's, in, in Alaska, I've told this people, my limited experience, this is only my second trip to Alaska, but there's no way that you can fully grasp how amazing it is up here with the camera. You cannot show it. The beauty doesn't exist unless you're standing there because it's all around you. If you take a picture with your phone, it never looks as stunning as the whole picture around you. It just doesn't. It's 
It's a place you have to see and experience to really fully grasp it, just how big and beautiful and amazing it is. Um, you are a fishing guide as well, and there's so many different fish to catch. You were just showing me some fish. You fly people into remote lakes. Um, the Kenai River is a couple miles from your lodge here. So um, what are some of the fishing trips that you like to take people on the most? Well, well, I started out as a Kenai River guide as well. I had my pilot's license. I was building time. I didn't start doing the piloting and the ultimate expedition, which is our day where you have a dedicated plane that takes you out for the day. As I told you, I guided it with, with Alan or Tracy, who still flies for Talon Air, um, as the pilot's when I first opened the lodge 27 years ago. But once I got my pilot's license, my first aircraft that I used commercially was a 185, and then I needed something bigger, and I got to the Beaver. When did I get the Beaver? In um, 2007, so what's that, 15 years or so. Um, so um, that's what I do. I do... I, what, what, what we call an ultimate expedition. It's an all-day fly-out. I load people up in the plane, and I do the guiding. I take them to multiple different places. You know, the irony of, like, for example, one of the things that makes it nice to have a bush plane is this is one of the wettest summers we've ever had, right? It's a, yeah. It, it broke records. August, they, they were exceeding rainfall records in August by the middle of the month. And um, until about, Five days ago, I hadn't put a rain jacket on while I was fishing. Now, ask Monty, my main river guide, how wet he was this summer because he's stuck <laughs> on the Kenai River. It is what it is. It is. I look at south-central Alaska. I've got east of the Kenai Mountains. I've got between the Kenais and the Alaska Range, and I've got west of the Alaska Range, and I'm pretty good at weather, and that windy T-app helps me out a lot. Mm -hmm. I figure out how to take people to where the experience is nice. My dad used to say, you know, Bob, it's supposed to be a treat, not a treatment. Yeah. You know, and, and so I try to make sure it's not going to be a treatment, and I can usually find a great place to go, catch plenty of fish, and the species vary. So our, our season on the ultimate varies a lot because like in June, I'm targeting grayling, lake trout, char, early part of June, big pike, which of course yeah. Minnesota people are probably yeah. not like just wanting to come up and catch pike in Alaska. No, they're, probably they're, not. They've caught enough pike. Mm -hmm. But the California people have never seen one, so they all want to catch so a pike. So they're high on their list? Oh, yeah. You really? know, it's a, yeah, a lot of people come up to just fish pike. I mean, they're really enamored with it, especially what, fly they, fishing. Are they big? Uh, not, not like massive, like big Canada pike, but yeah. like I, the biggest one I've ever landed um, was 43 inches. Yeah, that's a yeah, nice size no, fish. Yeah, 25-pound fish. Yeah. But we get a lot of fish in the 32 to 38-inch range, and I can expect a few 40-inchers every season during that spawn. Um as it transitions later into July, we start getting into sockeye salmon. I don't target those a whole lot on my ultimates, although I do have a saltwater snagging spot if people want meat, and, I, and that kind of goes from from about mid uh, 
oh, the end of June to the end of July, but there's a, an amazing sea run, dolly run that comes in with those, and then I'm catching those. I showed you pictures of those same I'm fish. so jealous because That's I got a-, a dolly on the Kenai two days ago, and it looked nothing like yours. I mean, it looked like, I mean, it, mine was like 10 inches. It big was, big males this time yes. of year are in their spawning color. They're in the char family, you know. Which- and that's an interesting thing about a lot of fish. Down in the Midwest, fish are what they are. They don't change colors. They don't change shapes. Right. You know, these fish up here go through a life cycle. And my wife has this book, and we were looking at it the, before I came up here. You know, this is a pink season on the right, Kenai. Right, You know, and it shows all the stages that the fish go through and how their bodies change. You know, so the dolly that I caught on the Kenai is a long, long ways away from looking like that beautiful specimen. Your, your fish was like oranges and, and pinks. Mine was just a silver. It looked similar to a rainbow trout. Right, just a small mm-hmm. cylindrical salmonid that was silver. And if you looked really carefully, you could see faint pink dots, you know, mm-hmm. would be what you would catch if you caught a sexually immature one or you caught one in June. That's what they look like in June. They're pretty silver Even fish. that 20-some pound fish that you were holding would look silver? Yeah. In June? Yeah. So when they're spawning, they, they change colors just yeah. to spawn? Yep. Do they die after the spawn? No, they, they survive. They go all right back to silver? metamorphic changes, the kipe jaw on that male, mm-hmm. they all go back to kind of a normal feeding snout in, after the spawn, and then they go out into the, those particular fish that I was showing you, those yeah. would go back out into the ocean and live in the winter, feed in the winter out in the ocean, and then come back in in June following the sockeye salmon, feed on the sockeye salmon eggs, probably dine a little on the flesh, eating the smolt from last year's run. They're all capitalizing on that sockeye salmon run, which is a huge biomass, right? Yeah. And then... um. And then eventually, this time of year, now they're spread up and down the rocky shoreline of that lake spawning in big pods. So we can target them with spinners and we can target them with... uh, Flies? With flies. It's a little dangerous with spinners because the silvers will grab them. So if you use light tackle for... it's oh, what a terrible thing! A bigger fish is going to grab it. <laughs> yeah, hard to land them on eight yeah. pound test. You know, you got to wear the fish out to, mm-hmm. to land it. So I try not to fish light spinners this time of year. I just bring the heavy rods, and it is what it is. But you can use a light fly rod and a small fly, and usually the silvers will leave that alone and and catch sea run dollies like that beautiful one I showed you a picture of. This episode of Do North Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Sportsman's Guide. For everything you need to enjoy the fun, freedom, and traditions of the outdoors, you got to check out sportsmansguide.com. From hunting and fishing to camping, hiking, and just hanging around a bonfire in the backyard, you'll find it all at Sportsman's Guide. Tree stands, blinds, rods and reels, ATV accessories, and so much more. Clothing and footwear, too, from top-notch brands like Scentlock, Nomad, Mountain Hardware, Irish Setter, Danner. Ah, the list just keeps on going. Plus, a full line of firearms, ammo, and accessories. The bottom line, if it happens outdoors, you'll find it at Sportsman's Guide. Shop today at sportsmansguide.com and use the code DUNORTH for $20 off your first order. That's DUNORTH, all one word, for $20 off your first order. The the locals up here are funny to me. We were fishing with these two young guys, and we were on the Kenai, and they were basically shaking off the salmon like they were carp back home, like a rough fish, basically. And I get that the, it's a pink season, which 
maybe explain that to somebody that doesn't know. What is a pink season, first of all? So frequently pinks or humpback salmon have odd or even years that they come in in big numbers. Like the fishery that I was fishing yesterday has a humpy run. It's an odd year humpy run, which I hate it because hmm. there's so many pinks that they're getting in the way of catching silvers. And that's what your guides are describing, or your, you know, what Eric and Evan were yeah. describing. You know, it's like they're a nuisance fish. They're not, especially once they've started to change. I mean, if you catch them out in the salt water, they're an edible fish, um, but they're the least commercially valuable of all the salmon species, of all five Pacific salmon. And so we, you know, they're, they're a nuisance. Now, I've seen lots of little kids have a ball with them. I've seen, you know, new beginner fly fishermen. They're aggressive. They bite flies. They mm -hmm. fight, you know, they're, they're strong, but they don't make sizzling runs. They don't jump. And so, yeah, we're trying to shake them off. I mean, I literally, when I, when I used to guide on the Kenai during, during pink years, I would use 40 pound leaders so I could just grab the leader and like, you know, lift the fish out of the water to get my hemostats on it and get the hook out as quick as possible, mm -hmm. you know, because you're just, you, you might have to catch 25 pinks to get to a silver. So, you know, at the end of the day, they're a nuisance to us because I might have to handle a hundred of them to limit a guy with silver. Such an awesome problem. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> such well, an awesome problem. You know, fishing can be too good. Um, I, I was, <laughs> I, 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 you, if you go to the Instagram page, you'll see, yeah. uh, oh, it was probably, all it was probably Alaska like. Alaska Outdoors is the Instagram page. Yeah, by right. Me. Yeah. All underscore Alaska underscore outdoors. And uh, um, I think it was about the first week in August. Um, I had two guys. I took them over. The silvers weren't in yet because that's what we finished the season with. The silvers were not in yet at the Bay of Pigs, but the sea run dollies were well established. They were starting to get pretty. And um, I had taken them up the upper end, the inflow amongst all the spawning sockeyes. And of course they got one of the, you know, green headed, red bodied males and got a nice photo. And, that, and I understand that. I'm being enamored with that, and I always try to get them a good photo because it's cool. Yeah. Everybody loves that, yeah. but you wouldn't eat that fish, and so we released it. And then they were getting some sea runs on streamers, and we came down to the outflow end, and uh, and I didn't know because those fish move around a lot. I didn't know if they'd be in there. Um, there was enough humpies at spawning at the outlet that there was a stack of sea run dollies for like the first 100 yards of the river. So they were fishing for the humpies because they'd never caught one. And I said, well, just keep throwing those streamers that we were using for the sea runs and you'll get one and you can punch that off your list. I'm going to go look at the river. And I looked at the river and I came back and I said, I got good news and bad news. And they said, what's that? I said, well, the good news is you guys are going to catch a lot of fish. I said, the bad news is you're going to be sick of it. And they go, no way. And both of them agreed. I mean, at three o'clock, they said, yeah, you can take us home. Too good. Too good. Every cast. Unreal. I mean, the, the, the dollies were in there so thick, and I had them fishing a bead under a strike indicator, probably mm -hmm. like you might have been doing for the trout yep. with, with Eric and them. And <clears throat> every drift, berry. And it's the same thing. They're, they're complaining when it's a two-pounder because you can see the six-pounders, and you want the six-pounders, yeah. you know? And so they're, they're like, oh, no. You know, darn, you know, it got hooked. I'm like, well, you know, because you, you can't tell. The strike indicator goes down, you set the hook, and yeah. if it's a two-pounder, <laughs> you're disappointed. I'm like, listen to yourself. You're catching, you're catching two-pound trout on a, 
on a six-weight fly rod, and you're complaining. At the base just, of a picturesque mountain. Right. Um, and just crystal so you know, water but flowing it, through. But it, it can be too good. Fishing, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I read an article about, you know, addictive behavior. And addicted behavior occurs when there's variable reinforcement. You, it has to be variable. You cannot know the outcome mm-hmm. or it's not addictive, you know. Dang. I mean, so that, that, that's what gets us. It's why gambling is why people have gambling problems. Because if you now, obviously, I guess if you won all the time, you'd still gamble because right. that would be how you made your living. But the, the gambling addicts that are losing money are doing it because once in a while they win. And that behavior is addictive. So that you need that with fishing. And I'm always a little worried when it's too good. I like a day when you got to work a little harder to get the fish to bite. Well, I, I will tell you, when, you, when um, you work harder for something, you appreciate it. And it's more rewarding. You know, when we, when we landed on that lake, Bob, you don't know this because you flew off. Um, but when we were gearing up, the dogs went on point. I heard about it. We didn't even have our vests on our shoulders yet, and the guns weren't even out of the the cases and the socks that we brought. <clears throat> and the dogs were on point less than 100 yards away. And I'm like, well, that's awesome, but it didn't have the same we-earned-it feel. Yesterday, it took us three and a half hours of hiking, vertically 3,000 feet, and six miles. And that's when we finally got the first bird. And that was a feeling that we were on a high when we reached it. Not only were we on the high of the top of a mountain peak, but we were on a, on a high of life to accomplish something so challenging that few people would ever attempt it. You know, to hike up on the top of a mountain the way we did, to get there and to accomplish it and to make it happen. And a rock ptarmigan is a rare, is a rare, not a rare find, I should say. You probably could go right to some right now. But to get them, for even even Evan and Eric yesterday, I was like, holy cow, I thought that was a cool accomplishment, but they were just as jacked as I was because of what it took to get there. It's it, They are, to me, they're the hardest one to, to get. Now, if I can get out west, there's there's the, the mountains are much more forgiving out there. They're kind of cinder blows uh-huh. and and they're 3000 feet and I can get, I can land at a you know 2500 foot lake and hike up to 32 or 37 more of a gentle climb and you get up on top of these cinder blows but unlike the whitetails which like white-tail are ptarmigan. little fam whitetail ptarmigan which are yeah. little family groups that live in very small area and they they're re, you can find them like Mern's quail yeah you know if you find a covey of Mern's quail you can find that can covey the next there. year you know what i mean yep. whitetails are the same way so if you steward them well and just take a couple and then don't ever go back to that valley again with the next group you'll mm-hmm. always have that family to go find yep. so i find them easier i know i can get a guy a whitetail rock ptarmigan they you know they move i mean they 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 flock up a fair amount and they move enough that it may be difficult. And some days you might walk a really, really, really long way and not get lucky and get one. Mm-hmm. So from my perspective as the guide, I'm a little squinchier about whether I'm going to be Taking successful or not. Yeah. And I do like to see once the snow starts to come down the mountain because I know that's pushing them down, making it easier to get to them. Um, you know, if I go west, I have a pretty consistent chance, but 
I have to rely on weather allowing me to go west, and it tends to be nasty over in that Bristol Bay drainage more than it is over here. The Kenai Mountains are tall and jagged, as you found out. Ooh. And um, so, so yeah, you got a great accomplishment there. I would not, I would say most days if I set out to go shoot with an airplane, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to give that caveat. Um, Which I'm going to say, if you have the opportunity to fly in versus hike in, you take that plane 10 out of 10 times, just from my experience. <laughs> and, so you know. and my cameraman who was in the fetal position upstairs, he will attest to it too. <laughs> Poor guy. But, you know, I would say most days by September, yeah. if, I have, if I take my airplane, I can shoot a willow ptarmigan, a whitetail, and a rock ptarmigan. You know, I could probably do that today. But, yeah. but the rock ptarmigan would be the one I would feel like was going to be the, the the one that I might fail because I might not find one of those fifty mm-hmm. bird flocks. No matter how hard I walked, if I did, maybe I won't get lucky and they won't call. You would have walked by those birds. You said, you yeah. know. Um, so I'm, what I, the, I hunt rock ptarmigan with binoculars. So what the camera won't show when we air this episode is that you know we're we're six miles through the mountains. We came over this pass and we dropped down about eight hundred feet roughly, and we're working. It's going to start working through this big valley, through the mountains. And all of a sudden, we hear this sound. It sounds like a frog croaking on top uh, of it. Yes. Uh, and, and Evan and Eric froze, and they're like, rock ptarmigan. You got to love that and sound. And we just, we didn't move. And, we, and they were like, it's up there. And so, all of a sudden, we're looking at this. It, it was not 90-degree slope, but it was dang close, Bob. It was... 70 degree slope, I think, maybe 65. It was very, very steep. And all of a sudden, this white thing flies and lands, and we're like, oh my gosh. And we look and we see all these other white dots moving around this mountainside. It's all rock, it's all jagged. And we're like, we have to go. That's what they said. They may never have this opportunity again. We have to go. And I'm like, I'm in. And so we all ended up, we got four rock tarmac yesterday. And it was like, we were on such a high. And when we came down from it, the rest of the hunt on the way down, is we stopped a couple times. We we're like, wow. I mean, the highs and lows, like we can't, you can't sustain a high like that, even though like, I mean, the adrenaline, we ran up that mountain. I ran Bob 800 feet straight up a mountain and didn't even phase me. I didn't even think twice. And I got a 50 pound pack on my back with all this gear. And, um, you know, to be in a position to get that bird. And it's funny, you mentioned that on the way up a dog, one of the dogs points and we look and there's three white tails and we're like a hundred yards from this big covey of rocks. And I'm like, they go, let's keep going. They go, they go do you want to take a shot at the white tail? I'm like, not if the rock is there. I mean, that's like right. the top of, that's a pinnacle right there. So we left the white tails. Meanwhile, 50 or not 50, but 200 yards from that of a covey of willows got up. So we could have got the hat trick or the ptarmigan Alaska slam all within 500 yards yep and they were going on evan and eric were going on about how unreal that is you know and how unlikely and people come up here and they may not see that so anyway i i know that the good lord took care of us yesterday and put us in position and and we talked about that afterwards and it was just it was amazing um hey i was gonna tell you something it was kind of funny because you talked about 10 out of 10 times take the plane well (laughs) i i'm you, you you sound like you might be describing where i took my partner so when i First opened the lodge, one of my original partners. I was probably a little right about Eric's age. 
And I was about as gun ho as Eric about, you know, hiking in on ptarmigan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and back in those days, I thought, well, you know, I'll have walk-in hunts and Eric plane hunts and it'd be a different price for him. And, and we might do that again now that Eric's willing to do that. But mm-hmm. I took my partner on one of those hunts. You know, it's an hour drive from the lodge and then six miles of hiking to get above alder level where you to where you're to actually start hunting. starting hunting. Yeah. And we went up, and and it might have been the valley you guys were in from the, what you're describing, but I forgot to ask Eric where he went. But at, at any rate, we shot a bunch of willow tarm again and came back down. And my partner, who was he's 13 years my senior um, at that time, he he said, "If you take people on this, they'll kill you." I would. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, what, that's what he said. So just yeah. so you know, you may want to consider the, the extra the extra expense of uh, yeah. of 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 doing fly in hunts. And the other thing, if we're yeah. since we're talking about you know the concept of coming to Alaska and staying with us, and you mm-hmm. know, and and being out with either myself or Eric, and you know, and and getting dropped off, or or me if if it's you know two parties of two, probably mm-hmm. Eric and I will go, and I'll and I'll keep the plane in the mountains. Um, if that's your reason for coming to Alaska, you don't book one ptarmigan hunt. Yeah, book at least two, and I separate them by a few days so that you don't end up with one weather pattern yeah. knocking out your hunts. Well, that's everything we've done this week has been weather dependent. Everything in my gear list, my gear bag, is wet <laughs> right now, drying out, because you guys, like you mentioned earlier, have had the wettest season maybe on record up here. And weather dictates everything you do. Just like it changed our plans. We weren't planning to fly in and hike out. We were planning to fly in, hunt, and fly out. But the weather changed, so we we changed with it. And we were flexible, and you were flexible, and we appreciate that. So we could still experience it. But there are people that won't get to experience something they came up here for based on the weather. And it's for their own safety and their own good, obviously. But, yeah, that's that's a really good recommendation. And I think you would probably say that the... If you plan to do a fly-in termigan hunt like that, there are other options when weather does change your plans, right? Typically, we give you whatever is available, river fishing. Yeah, that's what um, I mean. Like you you can know, go, go on the Kenai with one of our guides. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a day where we can't do a termigan hunt because uh, wind in the mountains, but we could do a fly-out to a fishing location that's not up in the mountains or something. So there's, mm-hmm. there's uh, you know, there's often, you know, Options. something else that you could do to replace it or, you know, that turns into an off day and we try to reschedule. But, you know, people have to understand that for the most part, those planes are spoken for every day. Yeah, I don't have a day that I'm not scheduled. I mean, I'm going out to moose camp for seven days. I come back and I've got hunts from the hunts or fishing trips from the 17th till October 1st, and then it's planes going to bed. So that's yeah. I was going to ask you what are, what are your seasons up here because it gets pretty nasty. We can start um, in late May with fishing trips. Okay. Um, you know, probably realistically about the second week in June is when things really get rolling, and then we're going hard until the end of of September. I've run ptarmigan hunts as late as October 5th, but if somebody books one that late, I tell them, and there is a chance that, you're gonna, that I'm going to call you and say, it's snowed, snowed too in. much and it's over, cancel your plane tickets, unless you want to come up and trout fish. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because yeah. you can still do that. Well, yesterday when we were climbing the peak to get to those rock ptarmigan, it was snowing on us. Sure. Yep, and we climbed down and it turned to rain. 
but we, uh, I would recommend if you come up to Alaska, you, you ask, you know, Bob, ask you or whoever it is that you're talking to that you want to know what gear do I need and don't skimp on the gear because it can make or break your trip. The experience is amazing, incredible, but if your boots are not good and you, your feet hurt, you know, you're, it's not going to be enjoyable if you're going on a hiking adventure. Just like proper rain gear, um, you know, I was dry all day even though it rained. Uh, and it kept me in in the moment, appreciating it, enjoying it. Because if it if it's a light rain, mist or whatever it might be, and then all of a sudden the sun's back out and, you know, and you're wet after, I don't know, you just don't want to come up unprepared. Be prepared, go at your pace, um, and come up with somebody that that is like-minded, that can appreciate whatever adventure it is that you're going on, because you want somebody that can keep up with you or like has that same um, appreciation, so that you don't have somebody that is kind of like, oh well, you know, it's not that great, and then you you just don't enjoy the experience as well. That would be my my advice to somebody considering a trip. Obviously, family members, you know, to come up and see something like this. Um, <clears throat> you have spent a lot of time, Bob, on the water, in the air. You know, we, we flew over a big old brown bear or grizzly, depending. I don't know how you That would have been a brown bear because we were, that was, he was down on a salmon stream. So he's clearly within 25 miles of, of salmon rivers what determines a brown versus you know, a grizzly? sometimes they talk about 25 miles from the coast you know basically what i say is if they're if they're feeding on salmon they're brown bears you know if they have access to salmon runs they're a brown bear if they're making their living in any other way during the bulk of their feeding season which is in the summer then they're a grizzly species wise you know, whatever definition you use, a bear could walk from one place to another and become the other bear. <laughs> That's what you, you know? said when we were playing. I mean, well, if he was on that side, he, if he walks over there, now he's a grizzly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's not a genetic difference. I mean, there's obviously some subtle genetic differences, um, but I, I, they're, they're, they can interbreed, and and it's more of an arbitrary designation. A Kodiak brown bear is just a brown bear that lives on Kodiak. Kodiak's an island. You can't get away from a salmon stream. So they're mm -hmm. all brown bears. There's no grizzlies on Kodiak. What's this big guy over my That's shoulder? a brown bear. There's all kinds of animals in this lodge. There's moose over there. There's a black bear. There's uh, ducks. There's ptarmigan. There's caribou. There's fish. I mean, it's sheep and wolf. And Oh, we saw some sheep. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I was at the same elevation as sheep. We saw a black bear yesterday on the yeah. mountain when we were... Hiking up, I mean, it was just to see it. But you probably have had some run-ins, some some close encounters. Anything that stands out to you, uh, bear-wise, when you're out? In yeah, the yeah. One time, so there's a little trout stream that I fish that you hike in, and it's got very thick cover on both sides, and it's really tiny water, um, and it's got a sockeye salmon run that's that's huge. I mean, big, you know, I mean, there's just sockeyes all throughout it, and the trout follow them up, and they're feeding on the eggs. And on a on a given day, I flew you over the creek, actually, but the bears have already moved out because the sockeyes are gone. And um, on a given day in July when you might be fishing it, I might fly that creek bear viewing and count 13 bears. Well, these bears are not the acclimated bears that are at some of our fishing spots where you get to take nice pictures and the bears are almost like voyeurs, you know. They, they come to show off in front of you. There's like a, there's like, some, they, they, it's funny how bears like, 
interact with humans in these high interaction areas. They're clearly not scared anymore. And they actually sort of, it almost seems like they're exhibitionists. Well, these bears are not. They'll typically run away. And I had been fishing this river for a few times that year. And there was a three-year-old that had some kind of attitudinal problem. Three-year-olds are the problem bears. You know, he's a male kicked out from mom that year, you know. And um, he had kind of like pushed several times and, um, you know, I'd chased him. What do you mean by push? Yeah, just kind of coming over towards us and, you know, and I'd chased him off every time. And I'm carrying a 500 caliber Smith & Wesson with 465 grain bullets at 1,900 feet per second. Hold on, you know. Yeah. And and a can of bear spray. And, you know, I've I've sprayed quite a few bears over the years that have tried to take salmon from me. But we're not (laughs) keeping fish. We're just fishing. But he's like just a jerk. I mean, he's like he wants to mess with us. (laughs) Spraying bears it was and a, it was a new fish. trip, and uh, and I hadn't seen that bear, and I was on a bend, and the clients were fishing, and it was a couple guy clients, and I had gone over to the edge to go to the bathroom. So my waders were down. My gun, of course, was on my belt, which was down on the ground, and I was in the act of relieving myself when all of a sudden I hear, oof. And coming out of the brush is that bear, and he's charging straight at me. And I backed up. I'm grabbing my gun going, no bear, no bear. And it was a false charge, but I didn't know it was a false charge. At about five yards, he stopped and shot off into the brush. And for 10 minutes, I couldn't tie a fly on. I mean, I was still shaking. I mean, I'm that, shaking right that, now. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the scariest bear encounter I ever had because I thought, I was going to be trying to grab that gun and shoot that bear with it on top of me, you know, but it was just a false charge. He just was like, he just had this bad attitude, you know, but boy, he got me. Maybe I gave, he, him, maybe I gave him the nod on that one. I said, okay, you're up now because wow. I'd been chasing him off and he and I had been having these confrontations and I'd been winning and he's like, I'm going to get this sucker. Oh, look at this. He's going well, maybe to the you, Maybe you sprayed him when he tried to take one of your fish before he was trying to get he, back we, at we, you. We weren't keeping fish and I never did spray him, but I have sprayed bears before. I've got some video footage, of, you know, and, and there's a, in fact, if you go to Instagram, and we just reposted it a few days ago. Same creek. I had some guys. You, it, it's funny. The, I think I saw that video. The, the fishing game guy says you can't fish there after July 31st, but I can't see anywhere in the regs. It says you can't go up there and hike. Yeah. So I had some guys. We got done fishing at the Bay of Pigs, caught silvers, and they said, hey, is there anywhere we can see a brown bear? I said, well, yeah, I got a place, but it's, uh, you know, make sure you want to do it, and you got to hike quite a bit. So I took them up there and uh, and and did that video and I think right after if you it, the real audio on it instead of the music that's being played, um, it, it's like after we were walking along and I can see the bear. Most of the bears are running. We keep we the wind was wrong and they we'd hear them but we wouldn't see them. And this one the wind was just right and I saw the bear coming and so we're creeping up creeping up and the bear comes around and he comes and I'm pointing and he comes running down jumps in the water right in front of us, grabs a sockeye, and then he looks up and sees us and runs into the bushes. And I looked at the guys, I go, does that cover it for you? That's <laughs> and they amazing. That was the most amazing thing ever, you know. Yeah. So we were purposely stalking bears in tight quarters, you know. But I love to do stuff like that, you know. And I mean, I'm pretty, I'm, of course, I had You're my gun. I had my gun and the bear spray, <laughs> one in one hand, one in the other, yeah. you know. You're ready. I've been in that river before, standing on a high bank, looking down at a sow with two cubs, watching her feed, you know. 
um, you know, amazing. You know, the clients are just going, this is unbelievable. We're 10 feet from this bear, you know. I mean, so, you know, or 10 feet up, you know, above. vertical distance. We're above it, but, you know, vertical distance is 10 feet. I'm a little, I'd, I'd maybe 20, 30. They got plenty to eat, you know. Oh, I mean, my gosh. But and they're big. Yeah. They're- so anyways, it, it, you know, it's been a blessing. I mean, when God showed me Alaska, it was like the, the day that, you know, I, I found myself and, uh, you know, I've just, I've, I've been lucky. I've peace put phenomenal people in my life to give me a good track. And luckily I've stayed safe and I've had amazing experiences. I've got to share these experiences with people. I just love to guide, you know, I mean, I love to show people the amazing things that I see. I can't tell you how many times on an ultimate expedition people have told me when we landed, that was the best day of my life. Oh, i yeah, I've just got goosebumps right now because I think you summed it up perfectly right there. And there is a lot that you can do in this world. And I tell I tell people all the time, if you have the means and the opportunity to go on an adventure that is something that you've always wanted to do, take it because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And you, you don't know what your health will be like next year, the year after. Bring a family member, bring a friend, um, but just go on adventures like that because it can change your perspective on life and it'll create memories that you'll never forget. These experiences are incredible. Thanks for sharing some of your stories, Bob. Um, I highly recommend if somebody's considering an adventure in Alaska, whether it's hunting or fishing, that you check out All Alaska Outdoors. Bob, I think you um, can tell if you listen to Bob's conversation for the last hour, just his enthusiasm. Um, everybody else up here ha- has that enthusiasm and shares it. It's a rugged place, but it's ruggedly beautiful. And the mountains, the fishing, the hunting, everything that you could dream of, it's up here. Any closing thoughts, last thoughts? Um, you know, just keep in mind, uh, uh, a, a halibut captain uh, said this to me and uh, uh it really stuck because uh, I was going to go out with some clients on this trip and the weather was not good enough to, uh, um, to go and get halibut because it was too rough. But he said, I can take us around a corner in a glacial bay, in a glacial bay and there will be icebergs and we can chip some ice away and make some, you know, margaritas uh, with uh, glacier ice and we can catch some rockfish. There's a good rockfish pile and we can get a limit of rockfish. And one of my clients said, man, I was really counting on halibut. And, and this halibut captain said, you know, he said, at the end of the day, the, that halibut is just residue in your septic tank, but the memories we can make will last forever. And, and I like people that realize that it's not about the fish box when they go home. It's about the experience that you have while you're here. So don't come up here locked in mentally that the point to come into Alaska is to go home with a bunch of a meat. freezer with me. Yeah. Th- that's the bonus. Okay. Yeah. And if you get a big bonus, great, but don't go home disappointed when God showed you. I mean, he made this at the end when he got really good, yeah. you know, he's like, okay, now I've got it dialed in. We'll make Alaska, <laughs> you know. Amen, I mean, Bob. don't go home disappointed because you didn't get everything that you thought you were going to catch or you didn't get enough meat in the fish box. 
be noticing what's around you because you you know you're being shown a special thing yeah amen we'll leave it at that bob thank you bob letta all alaska outdoors bush pilot extraordinaire fishing guide hunting guide all around excellent wonderful man you uh would enjoy this trip enjoy this experience and uh i wish you more success up here for many many years bob I'll be watching your show. I watched an episode, uh, you know, uh, the night before I flew you out. I'm like, man, this is great. And so uh, there's, it looks like there's a lot of episodes to watch. So I got, yeah. I got the winners are long, and that's <laughs> yeah. a good time for me to do stuff like that. And uh, thank you for coming. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you. I always like to be able to hang out with other Christian outdoorsmen. And, uh, you know, a blessing to have Eric kind of walk into my life and, you know, cause I am, I'll be 59 next year. You know, the days of me just, um, you know, doing 25 ptarmigan hunts in September, I got to start to limit those a little bit, you know, or burnout's going to occur. But right now I still, I still have it in me. I, I enjoy it. So. Yep. Yep. You're, you're in great shape. You've got many more years ahead of you. All right. We'll be back next week with another episode of Due North Outdoors. We hope you enjoyed this one. 